0: Hello friends, welcome. So glad you could join me today. Get ready for a deep discussion. We go about as deep on this one today as any episode that has come before it. That's because Brent Quick is my guest. He is a former star running back at Jesuit High School here in New Orleans, who then signed to play college football at K-State for Coach Bill Snyder, and then transferred to finish his playing days at Tulane. I love when he tells stories about his big time college football experience, playing in front of 100,000 people and the adrenaline that comes with it on a Saturday night with the snow falling and the sun going down over the horizon. ESPN cameras in the corner, cameras even moving over the play so millions of viewers can see the intricacies of an offense. It makes for great stories and Brant shares those with us. But that's not actually the deep part. The deep part is when we spend a good deal of time talking about The Power of Now, which is a book by Eckhart Tolle. He also wrote A New Earth, which we talk a little bit about. And then we switch to 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson. If you're a fan of either Tolle or Peterson, or even if you're not and would like to hear two average schmoes like Brent and I discuss the benefits we get from those books, either the spiritual realm of the power of now, or the wisdom and depth that Jordan Peterson provides and how those chapters that he wrote resonate with us, you're going to enjoy this episode. Since Brant's playing days, he started a health and fitness business that he recently sold. Congratulations, man, that is a huge deal. And now he does online health coaching, which he loves. It enables him to spend more time with his wife and young son and bring his son to school every day and uplift people and help them to improve their lives. They live north of the lake in Mandeville, Louisiana. That's north of Lake Pontchartrain. Unlike your average podcaster, we don't say without further ado on this show, we just bring on the guest. Please enjoy my chat with Mr. Brant Quick. Brant, I appreciate you being here, man. Welcome.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, Brad. I really appreciate you
0: my dad grew up right down the street from jesuit my grandfather went to jesuit but my dad decided to go to brother martin and i think it had something to do with his friends at the time were more going to brother martin my aunt works at jesuit joan barrera okay. no joan mm-hmm.
1: so your senior year you were a fullback i was i was a fullback running back I kind of, if you remember the Mike Allstott days back in sure. uh, Tampa Bay, so that was kind of me in high school. But so I was, I was a fullback. My my classmate, who was great, like he could have been, you know, the next Emmett Smith if he would have probably committed himself a little bit more. I mean, this guy was talented, fast, explosive, and he ended up breaking his ankle in our second game. And I'll never forget, we were playing Carver at Ornley in the middle of the day. In August and You know being down here, of course, you know, it's 100% humidity and you know, we're playing on turf like the old nasty carpeted turf So it was just ten times hotter our quarterback at that time was a sophomore We didn't throw that much So I think I ran the ball that game like 42 times for like almost 300 yards and when I tell you I was just Gassed after that game. I mean it took me a couple of days to recover and even at that young and um and then after that it was that that was it all year it was you know carrying the ball anywhere between 30 to 45 times a game you uh, mm-hmm.
0: oh my god yeah so you had what 28 touchdowns as a senior does that sound right
1: i think so okay i that read right. that, i read about you <laughs> you went
0: to play for coach bill snyder
1: i did why Oh man, so that that story. So I'm I'm, I'm being recruited um, Northwestern in Chicago, Michigan State where Saban was at the time, uh, Kansas State, who had kind of come on in the early stages of my senior year, Tulane, who had been recruiting me for a few years. So I'd pretty much narrowed it down to to uh, Kansas State or Tulane. And I, I pretty much was leaning toward Tulane, but I said, those are the two visits that I go on. Should I have gone on more, maybe? Um, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, but everything happens the way it, it's supposed to happen. So I ended up going to Kansas State, having a good visit there, looking at it going miles big time football. At the time they were vying for, I think, um, at that point, a national championship. Michael Bishop was there, and they were undefeated, and then they end up losing, I think, in the Big 12 North Championship, or they lost in Nebraska, and that sent them. They ended up going to the Alamo Bowl and winning. But they ended the year, like, top five, top six in the country. And, you know, I kept watching the BCS stuff coming out and looking at that. It was pretty neat watching it. And then I went to Tulane, and I had my visit there. Excuse me, and I knew in my heart. I was just like, this is it. Like, I just felt comfortable. It was homey. Like, I loved the, the players. That was the year they went 11-0. So, Bowden was there. And so, I ended up going on that trip. And then coach asked me, well, Bowden ended up leaving before that because he went to West Virginia. And so, I believe it was West Virginia or Clemson. I think Clemson. So then Selfo comes in and, you know, we were sitting there that day and he says, okay, he's like, you ready to commit. And I said, well, I said, I'm leaving. As soon as I leave here, I'm going to Jesuit. We're getting on a bus. We're going to, our, it was our prayer class. So we went to Manresa, which is a, you know, old plantation on the river. And I said, coach, I said, I'm going on a silent prayer retreat. I said, I'm going to pray about this all weekend. I said, and I really feel like after this, I'll be able to give you a better answer. I said, but I'm 99% sure that I'm coming here. And he was like, all right, man, that sounds great. The prayer retreat, when I'm at the prayer retreat, I write, we had to write our parents a letter. So in the letter, I wrote them, thanking them for everything they've ever done for me in my life. And in being at the retreat too, is like I was in that prayerful meditative state and just really seeing things like they were and, and really having great conversation with God. So... I wrote him this letter, and the letter got there before I got home. So I wrote him this letter, I'm going to Tulane, I want to be close to home, I want all of you to be able to be in the stands, I want you know anybody who wants to come watch me play, watch me play. It's going to give me great strength to see you all up there in the Superdome when we play at the Superdome. So I write, I write that letter, I get back to school, I get off the bus, I walk into the coach's office, I'm going to work out in the weight room, I'm going to turn the music up, and my coach, Robert Toomer, who is a running back at LSU, and he had graduated two years before, and he actually in Georgia, he's he broke all Herschel Walker's Russian records. But he was second string to a guy named Kevin Falk, if you remember <laughs> Kevin, <laughs> yeah. right? So um but he was amazing, man. Just he was a great mentor, great coach, one of my favorite coaches of all time, hands down. So I get in there and he says, uh, he's like, All right, quick, where are you going? I said, I'm going to Tulane, coach, and he goes, Man, he's like, You can't go to Tulane. I said, Why not? He said, He's like, Man, you gotta go to K-State, man, you gotta go to K-State. He's like i'm calling coach right now and i'm like oh lord here we go so he calls coach snyder yeah well he calls coach smith who actually went to jesuit and played for coach snyder when they were horrible uh was an all-american wide receiver and so he was the one that was recruiting me he knew this area obviously so he gets snyder on the phone snyder's like brent you don't want to be a Wildcat." and i'm like coach i said can you just give me till tonight Mm -hmm. and he says uh he says yeah, sure, take your time, however long you need. I said, no, I'll give you a decision tonight, for sure. I was ready. This was the biggest decision of my life at this point as a young man. You could change the trajectory of your life in a variety of ways, right? So my best friend in the world, one of my best friends, his name's Chip Moore. His dad was Derlin Moore, played for the Saints for 13 years, played for the Jets for a year. in the Saints Hall of Fame. He played at, played at Oklahoma. He's a walk-on football player on a track scholarship, ends up um, – going to throw the shot put they bring him on the football team becomes an all-american i mean just guys awesome played for the big eight so he's like a second dad to me so i called chip he's like where are you gonna go man and i was like i was going to tulane i said just come over i said and just come talk to me man like i need, I just need to talk to somebody i need to get my mind out of this place for a minute he comes in i open my bank we got quarters in there we're flipping quarters i said we're fl- flipping quarters put the tails in this pile put the heads in this pile if it's heads i'm going to kansas state if it's tails i'm going to to tulane and he says uh he's like okay so we start flipping them my mom comes in with the cordless phone back in the day at the house you know that the landline and she uh and she she holds a phone out she's like brant phone for you and i was like mom if it's a coach just tell him i just need a little bit more time all right she goes what the hell are y'all doing and i said i said we're flipping quarters to see where i'm going to college and she goes brant it's mr darlin on the phone and i said hey hey papa bear how you doing as we call him i said hey papa bear how you doing he goes what the hell are y'all doing i told him he goes all a bunch of jackasses," he says. "This is why you need to go to K-State. It's Big 12 football." He said, "You know, if you want, if you want a chance to go to the next level, that's your best bet." And this and that. And he all, he got me all fired up. And I was like, "Chip, put the quarters up. I'm going to Kansas State." I walk downstairs, tell my parents. I'm like, "Y'all okay with that?" Dad's like, "Absolutely." He comes out the next day. He's got a purple shirt on and everything. <laughs> Mom starts bawling, crying. I mean, she is not happy that I'm leaving. Her baby boy is leaving the nest. Right, so um so then i ended up yes at kansas state out of high school for two years crazy and what was competition like when you got there they said you have a chance to start this year so as why don't you as a freshman once you come up we really don't have that many fullbacks you know and i said okay yeah i'll be there i love it i love training i can get you know get used to being with the guys and everything get to know them so i get up there man totally different world And I didn't really understand or realize that they recruited the heck out of JUCO. And that's kind of how they built that program. And and from here, you don't even realize that there's a lot of JUCOs around. Like, I wasn't recruited by any JUCOs, you know, but there are several right there in Mississippi. So, and I trained them when I, you know, when I started training athletes. I trained, like, Jones County Community College, which is, like, you know, they won the national championship a couple years and stuff. So, it was interesting seeing that and and understanding it. But they got a lot of guys from the West Coast, and they have – community colleges and and junior colleges in Kansas. So when I'm there, they end up bringing in like two or three fullbacks just that summer, like literally signed them right out of junior college, like grabbing them and bringing them in. So I'm like, okay, and they're like, quick, yeah, you're going to redshirt this year, which was mm. tough. I mean, you go from, like, being the man to being the guy who has to, like, be on scout team with all these other blue chippers. Like, another one of our great friends, he he broke all Barry Sanders' Russian records in Wichita. So, I mean, it's the kind of talent that we had that had to redshirt because of the way that their system was. Now, of course, they wanted me there because they wanted me to train. Um, they also told me that I could play baseball there as well. And so that's why – that's one of the reasons I wanted to go there. And then once – we finished that first football season. You know, I told Coach, he's like, All right, you need to be here, here, and you need to work out at this time. I was like, Yeah, but what about baseball? Because that's in this time. He goes, What do you mean, what about baseball? And I'm like, Well, you told me I could play baseball. He's like, Well, you can go play baseball, but just remember you're on scholarship for football. And, We have the power to revoke your scholarship. I'm like, oh, that's how it's going to be. Okay. So I just said, all right. And I dealt with it. And I just, you know, I I played football only. So I was there two years. uh, Competition was crazy. Second year, you know, being a redshirt freshman. So having five years to play four, had four years left. And that year we ended up going, beat Nebraska, went to the Big 12 North Championship, lost to Oklahoma at Arrowhead Stadium, who ended up winning the national championship that year. And my freshman year, we played in the Holiday Bowl. And we were sixth in the nation overall. Second year, we uh, we lost in the Big Twelve North Championship. We ended up six or seven in the nation, and we played and beat Tennessee in the Cotton Bowl. Nice. Yeah.
0: So, transferring is a bigger deal than people realize because you do get acclimated at a school and comfortable with your teammates, camaraderie, and all that. But your family was a big magnet for you, right, in New Orleans. So was it playing time? Was it the family, all of the above? How did you ultimately make the decision to come back?
1: It was a culmination of time. But whenever I would, like to my mom, when they dropped me off, and, I mean, I drove my truck, but they came with all my stuff. And so she – I mean, she literally – my dad said she cried the entire way home. Like, she didn't want to leave me there. She's like, you can still come with us. She, she didn't want to leave. So she ended up crying the whole way home. So every time I would come home and leave, she would cry. I had a sister at the time, 13 years younger than me, who I left when she was – see, I was 18. Probably five. So she was five. So when I came home when she was six and seven, she just – she It was like she would shy away from me and didn't know me, and then my mm. my young my middle sister, who's like right above her, it was just a wild child, but her and I were really close, similar personalities and she ended up having an eating disorder, and I was the only one she told she asked me not to tell my mom and dad, and I felt like i, I had to tell them, so I did and she was mad at me and then I almost felt like it was my one of my responsibilities to go home and help her um to a degree, so it was a culmination of all those different things and just Also, educationally, like in in K-State has a great exercise physiology, exercise science program, it was one of the best decisions I actually ever made for a variety of reasons. And there was a lot of things um, in that program up there, I'll keep it light, that were very conflicting from an integrous and character standpoint of what I was, the way I was raised both in my household and bring brought up through Jesuit as well, being brought up through Jesuit. So I just, it, it... there are a lot of things that I, that I did not agree with in the way that things happen, whether it be like high level athletes doing drugs or people bringing guns to the, to the country bar and then, you know, getting out of jail. Not, I mean, not that I'm minded that they got out of jail, but it was just like the people that they were helping weren't necessarily, I don't want to say they weren't worthy of being helped, but there wasn't a lot of character and integrity.
0: Mm. Okay, so you come back to Tulane. You didn't play running back at Tulane.
1: I did my transfer year, so I came in as a fullback running back. So Frank Selfo, you know, he's he's a great guy, and his son went to Jesuit. So we just ha- so happened to run into each other over the the two years, and he recruited the heck out of me when I was at Jesuit, and I loved him. He was our offensive coordinator at Tulane, so you know I'd always see him, and he and he I would just sit with him at the games watching the game, you know. And he wasn't recruiting or anything. He's like, you know, but I still have that scholarship for you if you know if you ever want to come back, mm-hmm. you know. It's I never got rid of it, and I said okay. So I ended up doing that. I had to take a bunch of classes in the summer and everything. Anyway, long story short, I go in and, you know, coach, t- like Chris Elfo, told me, he's like, man, he goes, golly brain. He's like, we could really use you this year. Patrick Ramsey was our quarterback. He ended up playing for the Redskins. Moeldy Moore is our running back. He's like, man, we could really use you this year. He's like, I'm sorry. I really, I hate that you can't play, you know, because transfer year I had to sit out. So set out that year. And I mean, I still practiced and did everything, went to school. And then the next year, right before, so spring, going into summer and uh coach Saruda, who was our our strength coach he kept he said man I've been sitting in meetings and coaches like you know our biggest middle linebacker at the time was two two oh five, 205 and they were getting crushed like watching film the year before I mean just absolutely mauled off the ball and so he's like you know coach and I was about 240 at the time and coach was like he's like man coach you know he brings your name up about linebacker and but they don't want to move you because they need you on offense but we don't have a big middle linebacker and it's like coach I can go if the team needs me a middle linebacker I can go there and if it doesn't work out I can always go right back to full fullback and start or if they need me in the middle of a game the offensive scheme was so easy to learn that I could have just went right back in right so I was like well why not? And so he told me this three or four times. So I went to cell phone and I just I went. I said, Coach, can I meet with you? And he's like, Yeah. He's like, what, you, you okay? You got it? I said, Yeah, I'm fine. I said, I just keep hearing this. I said, I just want to let you know if that's in the best interest of the team. Like, I'm happy to do that. I hadn't played middle linebacker or a linebacker of any sort since I was literally like five or six years old. But I'm happy to to try. What's the worst that can happen? I go back to fullback, right? And he's like, Man, I really appreciate that. He's like, Thank you for saying that. Thank you for coming to talk to me. He's like, I'm gonna talk to Coach Schumann, who's our D coordinator, who played for Bear Bryant. And so he ended up talking to him and I get a call from uh, coach, you know, Schumann. I think it was like two days later. Quick. Yes, sir. I talked to coach. Come in here. Let's talk some schemes. And he's up there on the board. It looks like Japanese to me. I have no like I mean, I know coverages. Right. But like I didn't need to know intricate details of coverages as a fullback. So it wasn't. I didn't know it intricately like that. So I'm looking at it and I was like, coach, I said, I'm just going to come to seven on seven and try to learn like that. Cause this isn't, he's like, let's meet once a week. I'm like, coach, I, I, I don't think that's going to work out well. Cause I'm not, I don't, I'm not getting this, you know? And so, uh, so I ended up training with my sisters and another strength coach over in Mandeville, his name's Kurt Hester. And he's at Louisiana tech as the head coach, head strength coach now there. He was the LSU head baseball strength coach while he ended up going to him, which he tried to get me to go to him in high school, but I didn't have time so i'd go in the summer and i would just you know i'd i'd learn through doing jp lossman was our quarterback at that time he played for the bills got drafted by them him and I he got pretty close toward the end of our career as seniors. He's an interesting, interesting guy. His his attitude and, and his his pride uh, in in his work and what he did that one could very easily mistake for arrogance and cockiness, which I don't align with very well. But uh, but those seven on seven drills were really what kind of taught me the coverages and things like that. So my last two years, I started actually I started at at Sam at outside linebacker, strong side linebacker, but I was fast enough to where they actually used me like as a run stop nickel defense so like I could cover a receiver but I could also cover a tight end or I could stop the run you know whereas if you put a nickel back in there who you know and they run right at him generally he's going to get mauled a lot of times you know Mm -hmm. unless he's a bigger safety but at Tulane it was a little different
0: what was the biggest game you remember not not that you performed well in but just like adrenaline wise at Tulane
1: yeah while you're at Tulane uh, probably University of Texas, hundred thousand people in the stands, so that was a that was a good one. Um, the Hawaii Bowl was also a good one. We won that game. It was a, a big stage, ESPN. You know, I mean, we had several games on ESPN and stuff, you know, televised and everything. But it was just, it was, the, it was the stage, you know. Yeah. And it was the sun was going down, and you know, we had been there, we had gone to Pearl Harbor, and just, you know, it was a really cool experience and, and just a really neat, neat game too, the way it worked out. They had, Timmy Chang was their quarterback, and it was, you know, June Jones was their, their head coach, so it was a run and shoot yeah. offense, so running gunning.
0: Were they the rainbows at that time?
1: Yeah yeah no the one of were they like warriors now or something like
0: that they became the rainbow warriors and, that's what they were yeah the okay. rainbow warriors the year lossman was taken in the draft there were a lot of quarterbacks that went that year
1: isn't that
0: right wasn't he like the fifth or sixth one taken in a stacked quarterback draft
1: i can't remember exactly i no. could be wrong
0: why do you think snyder was so successful
1: um, I think he had a lot of great buy-in I think that what he did to implement this the juco system of recruiting helped to build that program up immensely and he was a gr- he was a great manager the the my dad and I talk about this a lot my dad's a great coach but I think the disconnect for for him and with players was he would come up to like say our individual drills and he would talking his tape recorder in his little straw hat and he would be like tell quick to get his pads lower to kick out the defensive end on power i'd be standing right next to him like well coach i just heard what you said i was like thank <laughs> you for the feedback and he's and i said but why wouldn't you just tell me and he's like well well i just you know i want to do this and let coach tell you as well tomorrow or the next day but if you didn't ask him he wouldn't say anything to you but that hit me at that moment my dad and i were talking about it and it's like people just wouldn't run through the wall for him you know yeah. Like, like everything else was in place, but there wasn't that X factor of like that tough love we talk about. There yeah. was a disconnect with him. Well, I that. think
0: of him as an old guy. Was he older? He then? was. Yeah. We're
1: gonna go kick their fannies, he would say, and everybody's <laughs> like, like you're before a game, and you're like, see, you kick their ass, coach. Like we're we're about to go to war, man. Like you know, this isn't a second grade class that you're talking to right now. That's hilarious. So the Texas game you played in front of hundred
0: thousand were there games of that magnitude when you were at K-State? Were, were they more frequent?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, shoot, the first time I ran out of the tunnel at K-State out of high school, you know, they had just put a new addition on the stadium. There's 70,000 people in the stands. You run out the door and it's like, I mean... I had so much adrenaline. It was hard for me to calm down, and I was redshirted, so I wasn't even playing. I'm just on the sideline, you know. So, I mean, that one, that one, so to speak, Arrowhead Stadium was packed when we played Oklahoma. Two Midwestern teams, you know, playing in, in Arrowhead Stadium in, in uh, Kansas City. So that was a, a really big one. You know, the bowl games, Cotton Bowl in Dallas and, and the Holiday Bowl in, in San Diego were we big as well. Um, the Nebraska game at home, you know, my sophomore year where we beat them for the Big 12 North championship and how that happened was just really cool. It, We had the wind at our back. We're going down in the south end zone. Uh, we're just driving down the field and we're down by, I don't know, three, four, whatever it was. And we're just hitting screen passes to my buddy Quincy Morgan. He's from Port Arthur, Texas. Boom, 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 just rolling down the field and sunset setting, the, the snow starts flurrying from the backside and it I mean it's just like it carried us into the end zone and man the students rushed the field goalposts came down It was a cool experience. That is awesome Did you
0: have a chat with Nick Saban when you were being recruited?
1: No, not directly with him mm. just his uh his coaches. I, I got a handwritten letter from him, but um, still but still have it I don't know. I'd have to ask my mom. Mm. Are and you I'm, a fan of his? Oh, uh, I mean, I don't have to deal with him So I I, I mean, I don't know. I, I I mean, I think he gets the job done yeah. You know, regardless of whether you like him or hate him.
0: So I read where it, you had said that it was a benefit to you having played on the offensive side of the ball for your transition to playing defense. It seems to me like, unlike baseball, where we play 100 games a year when you add them all up, football, you only get 10 games or so. There's not that much time to learn another position in your short career, but do you feel like People would benefit a lot if they had a chance to play on both sides of the ball.
1: Yeah, different perspective. Yeah. You know, I think it it allows you to see things differently. Mm-hmm. The reaction is different, though. I was just so comfortable in offense. Like I, there was no, it was just, it was like that flow state where defense to me was just, it was like learning how to play chess to a degree. Like the, re, I mean, I could react and see things differently because of being on the offensive side of the ball. But I think there was a lot of paralysis by analysis.
0: So you know you had no aspirations of playing in the NFL, CFL, any of that.
1: Well, I did. I actually uh, so I did pro days. I had a private workout with the Saints, and that was the year that they drafted Carney. But they told, actually, Mister Darlin, you know, they said, "Look, we're gonna we're gonna take him as a free agent if we don't draft a fullback." And they end up drafting him out of Arizona State. Then with the arena teams and things like that, I'll never forget we were in Disney World, and um, I was with my, I was just with my family in Disney World. You know, my sister was young, so we went and. When I was there, I got a call from an arena team, and you know, he's like, "Man, we we need you here tomorrow. Where are you at?" And I was like, "Man, I was I'd already been. I was coaching Jesuit's football team. I had a group of kids from there that I was training at Jesuit, and just doing what I love to do. And I I really sat down at, in Disney World my dad, had a heart to heart, and I was like, "Man, what do you think?" He's like, "I know, I know what you're thinking. He's like, but look, if this was an NFL team, he said, I'd say go. He said, but and like, it's your decision. He said, but are you gonna?" Are you going to leave what you've committed to with the kids from Jesuit and with the other programs you're already running in the area? To, he goes, because when you leave, he says, you know, you come back. It may not be here. He said, now, if it's NFL, it's different. He says, in my mind, he says, but if it's arena ball, he said, that's no, completely up to you. you. You do whatever you feel is right for you. And I made the decision not to do it. And I have no regrets about it at all. I mean, I love, love what I do, do what I love, and, you know, have for almost 18, 20 years now.
0: And did you get married in your
1: 20s? I did we were 26 when we got married? And how'd you meet your wife? Uh, we were. Uh, I went to a salon, and where she was, she ran the salon, and I went there to get my hair cut. And- we just we were friends you know for a while and she had a boyfriend and you know i was at tulane and then we uh you know one day they asked me to do like a work a spa night to like pour wine for people and she had broke up with her boyfriend and you know we hung out you know that night and um and then we ended up setting a date for i guess a week after that ended up going on that date and the rest is history
0: is it true that hairdressers are the craziest or not true
1: it is. She's she's not a hairdresser though. Oh. <laughs> she just ran the salon. She managed it like from the business perspective. So, um, no, I, I, no, not not judging. They, uh, I don't know. She would say though. She says they're a different breed, and they're some of her best friends. So,
0: so you're a coach, full-time health coach now. But you told me earlier that you've
1: sold your business. Yep. So I sold. I sold my, my business, my book of business and, you know, equipment. And You know, he basically took over the lease in, in my place. His name's Cyril Bernius, CJ. We call him CJ Bernius. But he was an intern with me and, when he was at SLU and, in human performance and graduated in that. And he worked for me for a little while, went to work for Enterprise, ended up coming back and uh, done really did really well. And I started health coaching with our program about two and a half years ago now. And so whenever the quarantine hit, my wife said look if anybody brings this home it's going to be you and so i said well look we've we have our health coaching business i said i'll come home a health coach and you know i'll just I'll, I'll get a glimpse of what that looks like full-time too which was really neat so it was probably one of the best things that could have happened at the time i know a lot of people didn't have the best experience in the quarantine and you know with their occupation and things like that and i, I feel horrible for them but in our life it was actually a blessing the way it all worked out and so I got to see that. So when I got went to go back in the gym, I created different expectations going back in because there were several people who would not train with another trainer or another coach. And so that always, I, I was the guy, right? So, you know, in the identity of the gym and the business and everything else, which, you know, I mean, how, how much longer can you do that? You know, my dad and my brother-in-law asked me, you know, probably six months before I started health coaching, like, what else are you going to do? And, um, and I said, well, you know, the grit, right? I was like, I'm going to do it as long as I need to do it, as long as I can do it. And, you know, working these hours and is what they were asking me. And so, you know, my people were became acclimated and they were happy with what they were doing. They're like, you you taught him really well and we see how you're enjoying your freedoms with your family and, you know, things like that. So we were completely good with him. You know, when I came back into the gym and then I started with about three hours, two times a week or three times a week, and that finally diminished down to one hour. And then now I've transitioned out of it to where, you know, and I've been full-time health coaching for a while now, but truly full-time health coaching where, I don't have to get up and go anywhere. I don't have to leave the house at 4.30 in the morning. I can actually bring my son to school. I can see him and my wife when they wake up in the morning, which you know was a big pain point for me. My mom, my dad, and my grandpa brought me to school every day of my life. And the conversations we had and the importance of those and the influence that those had on my life were just so very influential in so many ways. And I felt like that was a big void for me with my son and having that time with him.
0: We're both fans of Eckhart Tolle. You know, the author who wrote The Power of Now and A New Earth. Have you read those books? Absolutely. Which is your favorite?
1: Uh, probably A New Earth. Really? Yep. Um, I think Power Now, the way uh, we had a, a book club, and I think that it probably could have been written after A New Earth, but I think they're very much uh, synonymous with one another as well, so there's some a lot of great crossover in both. Interesting. So I used
0: to fall asleep to The Power of Now quite a bit. The audiobook is my second favorite audiobook to The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. Eckhart Tolle has such a soothing voice and the content is just the most relaxing. It's almost like you're meditating before you fall asleep. So sometimes I'll just, I've picked a chapter that I want to fall asleep to and repetition is the mother of skill, right? So I've just kind of internalized a lot of the book that way. But The Power of Now is so good. How would you describe his books to someone? A spiritual guide? Or how do you think about those books? Or how would you describe them to the lay person who's not into all the woo
1: stuff like you and I are? Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, You know, he, he does a really good job of, I think, talking to people like us, uh, who are into the more spiritual side of it but then also I think he does a really good job breaking it down simply so that the layperson can really and not that we're not lay people but you know the layperson who really maybe isn't into the in depth into the spiritual side as we are can truly understand and then they can implement those things into their life over time they may not be able to do it as quickly or they may not have the realization uh, of what he's saying at that particular moment, but like anything else with a practice, you know, people can acquire those those skills, if you will, you know, just like a yoga practice or a meditation practice. And so I think that, I mean, but his books, to be honest with you, you know, I'll audio book, I'd listen and I'd have to go back and listen again, or I'd read a paragraph and go, you know what? I need to read that, you know, a few more times just to truly digest where he's coming from, what he's saying, and then how do I really implement that into my life as well? And what are some things I'm doing that he's talking about right now and what are some things that I could do better, you know?
0: I'm so glad we can have this conversation because on a previous episode, I had G. Cassard, who's the head baseball coach at Ascension Catholic High School. He's been Catholic all his life, as many people down here are. He was telling me that he doesn't wear religion on his sleeve. And I said, nobody does down here. And that's (laughs) that's always seemed true to me, like 99% of people are Catholic or something. It's a really high number. I don't have the exact stat, but nobody talks about it for whatever reason. In the Bible Belt parts of America, they do talk about it. My friends in Houston were very turned off by any kind of talk about God, and no, not all of my I have a I have a specific group of friends who are atheists, really good people. For whatever reason, they just never got into it, and because of the stories they hear about the Bible parts of the country, Bible Belt parts of the country, they're turned off by it. Well, there are people who are also turned off and tune out immediately when you use words like enlightenment or spirituality. So hopefully we've been able to retain listeners four minutes in here. But
1: <laughs> Are you Catholic?
0: I am. Yeah, well, sort of a lapsed Catholic. So I went to Catholic school from kindergarten to eighth grade. And then when I moved to Texas, the schools were good there to where... It's harder to send your kid to public school in Louisiana than it is in Houston, especially in the suburbs of Houston. So there are really good schools, public schools. And similar to probably where you live, Mandeville and Prairieville, from what I understand, where Dutchtown High and Mm -hmm. little pockets where there are good public schools. My parents had divorced and they didn't want to get their marriage annulled. So my parents have been married 20 years twice each of them so to each other and then have since married again but they didn't want to get their marriage annulled they felt it was BS that you'd have to pay to get this acceptance back into the church or whatever so I was not forced to go to church after 8th grade and so I like most freshmen, sophomores in high school I didn't go and so I wasn't confirmed and so when it was time to marry my wife wasn't Catholic so we didn't marry in the church Uh, So that's a long-winded answer, I know, but uh, yeah, sort of a a lapsed Catholic. Something that is somewhat related, when I started meditating about three or four years ago, I was amazed at how similar meditation and prayer were. I mean, I felt like the Silicon Valley types who've really embraced meditation over these last few years, I, I feel like one of the reasons they're so high on it is they've never experienced prayer. And I feel like they wouldn't be making such a big deal about it if they had been praying all their lives. Because they would say, like me, oh, this is very similar to prayer. So, have you been a prayerful person all your life? I know you were raised Catholic and presumably are still Catholic.
1: Yes. Uh, Catholic by baptism, but I think more spiritual than anything else. If And hopefully that doesn't scare people off. So, I was, I've always prayed. Um, I was very hyperactive child played all kinds of sports family was on the go all the time we went to church every sunday for the most part unless there was something going on but we always made a point to go to church i thought it was the most boring thing in the world uh lasted too long you know you'd lose yourself in the in the catholic mass uh, to a degree but you walk away with you know some really good points and things like that and then you know when i got to jesuit uh, high school in new Orleans going through that faithful transformation was pretty amazing. And then by the time I got to my senior year, we did have a prayer class, uh, which it was a hand selected class. So you could apply for it, but you didn't get into it. Uh, so it was more of an elective class. And so Father the he was amazing. And in that prayer class, he not only taught us different forms of prayer, but he actually taught us meditation and that one Avenue right there really, I think saved me mentally. Um, into college, and I'll explain why, but he took us to retreats where we would do silent prayer, we would, you know, we would do meditation, you know, he taught us how to do breath work and even like pranayama, which we would call that in yoga, right, Um, in the yogic practice, which is just means breath work. Um, He taught us how to breathe and how to focus on our breath and how to center ourselves like that. So really neat, interesting um, perspective from a Catholic priest who taught us these different forms of prayer, whereas otherwise, I think when I got into college and I was just, I wasn't Really flexible, so I was strong as an ox. I wasn't flexible. And one of my buddies we used to stretch when I went together when I went to Kansas State. His name's Terrence Newman. He played in the NFL for years. And yeah. you know, did,
0: wasn't he like the fastest defensive back? Oh, uh,
1: yeah, he ran in a, the NFL? Ran a 4-2 40, <laughs> ran like a 10 100 him and Kevin Lockett, or not Ke- Aaron Lockett, when I was up there at K-State. So him and I were stretching partners, and he's like, Man, quick, you are gonna snap one day. Like your hamstrings are just gonna snap. And I'm like, I know, but I hate stretching, I hate sitting there stretching. So I did Tai Chi, Kung Fu I did, you know karate all these different things nothing really appealed to me and when I transferred back to Tulane My dad's friend taught yoga and so I started taking yoga fell in love with the physical and the mental benefits from it Love the meditations at the end slash prayer, you know, whatever you want whatever you want to call it just that quiet time and Savasana and dead course pose and so Then when I finished college and finished playing ball, I started teaching yoga because I wanted to teach my athletes and really anybody. I mean, my goal was to help as many people as I could, any age, you know, but I did train a lot of athletes, you know, professional all the way down to kids at the park. So I got certified in yoga for athletes and upon upon doing so, as I got into my career, at one point I was teaching yoga five times a day. So a lot of different things came to manifest both internally and externally from that. And I was experiencing things that, I didn't have language for at the time. So like Eckhart Tolle, right, put a lot of that, uh even Napoleon Hill. I mean, is is he's a man ahead of his time for think sure. Think and Grow Rich. Yep, Think and Grow Rich, Outwitting the Devil, if you haven't uh read that book. That yeah. is also phenomenal. Now that language has, I put language to the way I felt back then, but I think that I would have And I even had some inner turmoil with what I started to feel like I truly felt God's presence and God's love. Not that I didn't before. I always felt it, but I felt it on a different level that I couldn't quite explain. And so I tried to get a meeting with Father Skiro and he was just getting old. He was retired and he had moved off to where, you know, the Jesuits move when they retire. I think St. Francisville is where they go. And uh, so he wasn't there anymore. And, you know, I and it was an interesting point in my life, but, you know, I had my son, life got busy and I kept my spiritual practice, but it just wasn't as deep as it once was. And then now it's like coming full circle. So it was, it was really interesting. So I guess it's a long winded answer for yes, I am baptized Catholic. I'm confirmed Catholic. Uh, my son is baptized Catholic. He made his first reconciliation, first communion, goes to a Catholic school, you know, has that embedded into his curriculum and, you know, which is great, but also I want him to be a free thinker. I want him to experience things like i did you know in being um being taught various forms of prayer various forms of just i think something we a lot of us don't do we go to to god for petition and in times of struggle and strife but how often do we sit and listen to god right and i think that's truly what what meditation is where you know you can really you can you can listen to god you can be silent and you know you can look at things that come into your mind objectively rather than subjectively I think in today's day and age, for myself personally, you know, I, I believe that God is in and in us, around us, everywhere in this universe. And I don't necessarily look at God as this, this man that sits above us, you know, as opposed to God permeates all.
0: I like that. I've come to believe that God is internal and it's derived from my meditation experience. I didn't always believe that. Giving your kid access to different forms of prayer and meditation and just different ways of doing internal work is awesome. I'm glad you shared that because that's something that I'm going to be conscious of when it comes time for my kids to to start praying and meditating. And then, like me, they can make their own decision when they're old enough to make that decision, which route they want to go, which forms of prayer or meditation they want to incorporate into their daily experience if at all and hopefully they would choose to do so because they've seen the benefits to their dad free
1: thinking right like like you have these experiences but and then I think we get so caught up in both the structure of religion and the structure of school but what I'm trying to teach my son right now is because you know they get to the point in the age where like right now they don't like to go to school and they they dread it and I got to tell him, learn the foundation of what you need to learn in English and mathematics and all those things and even, and even the religious structure and your avenue and your pathway to God. But at the same time, while you're sitting there and while you're going through this rote memorization, be a free thinker. And how can you then take that knowledge and apply it to your purpose in life, whatever that may be? You know, and if he just retains 10% of that over time and, you know, eventually he he gets that for himself, you know, that's what's so very important. So giving our kids access to different experiences that then they can, as a free thinker, make better decisions for themselves, whatever that may be for them throughout their life. Well, knowing the level of indoctrination that may or may
0: not be happening at schools nowadays, certainly you were tempted to homeschool.
1: Uh, Yes and no. My wife would never go for that we talked about it, but we, but my son is a very social child. So not that you can't be social and and be homeschooled as well, but just to be in that social environment for him is, uh, is really important. You know, we deem as such, but with what's going on right now in the world and in schools and how curriculums are changing, the conversation has definitely come up several times about Online learning, homeschooling, you know, and those kind of things, and just exploring different avenues, just in case we would maybe want and or need those at some point.
0: The book that you mentioned by Napoleon Hill called "Outwitting the Devil." Since I mentioned Stephen Pressfield's "The War of Art," I can't help but relate the two. It, it's Stephen Pressfield's "The War of Art" is a lot about. Dealing with what he calls resistance, so resistance to your purpose or accomplishing your goals, and we all have vices and things that can get in the way of just doing your work. And he's a big proponent of just sitting your ass in the chair and doing the work. In fact, he makes the joke in the book that there's a, they're talking, he's talking about some prolific author, and he asked him if he only writes when he's inspired, and the author said, yes, yes. Only when I'm inspired. And it happens at nine AM every day. <laughs> and so the joke is that first get your ass in the chair at 9 a.m. and then worry about getting inspired. The the muse doesn't show up unless you do, is what he's getting at. And I love that. The benefits of being forced to sit through a mass when you're a kid, I think are huge. So I was listening to a Joe Rogan, an early Joe Rogan episode just the other day he had sam harris on who you know is a big meditator and and thinker and sam was sharing with joe rogan that he had walked into his kids classroom and seen that they were already starting to do internal work and joe rogan asked him asked him about it and i think sam said that it was like 15 minutes of just quieting your mind or whatever and i and i thought these guys didn't have religion when they were young. Sam is a huge atheist. Joe Rogan is not a believer in God. And they don't realize what they're missing. Uh, but that's a benefit of of being exposed to Catholicism when when I was a kid was just sometimes being forced to sit down through one hour of mass and you can't talk to your neighbor. And so you're in a way along with your thoughts that's hugely beneficial so you're paying for catholic school tuition is that costly nowadays
1: yes so we had we had a non catholic private school before that and so we got a pay raise when we actually went to the catholic school <laughs> uh, to be honest with you i think about 4 to 5000 about, about $4000 a year pay raise basically we're saving every year by sending them to the catholic school but it was because of the curriculum change at the private school, they had sold out to a global school, and we just didn't agree with the entire curriculum that was coming their way over time. So,
0: Presumably, the public schools in Mandeville are good, right? Yeah.
1: I mean, from what I hear from friends, I mean, we've never had our child at a Catholic school. I mean, at a public school, excuse me. But, um, but yeah, I mean, from what we hear in, in the educational system, it's pretty good.
0: So you must feel so strongly
1: about the benefits you
0: derive from your Catholic upbringing and going to Catholic school, because I know you went to Jesuit high school in New Orleans, that you want to instill those same values in your kid? Is that fair to say?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think giving him the framework of that structure, but again, enlightening him over time or educating him over time to being a free thinker. And I think that's what Jesuit does so well, is they give you the religion and that structure they also give, and they and they give it to you in this brief moment, you know, like a Jesuit priest, um, for whatever reason it is with them, you know. And, and I say that I mean they're they're highly educated, and you know not that most priests aren't, but you know they just and their focus is education. But when they deliver a homily, it's so much different than going to any of their mass. And in you know you go to a Jes- the Jesuit church on Barone Street here in New Orleans, the College of Immaculate Conception, which is where Jesuit High School started in 1847. Our ex-president of Jesuit High School, Father McGinn, is there. You can walk into a mass and literally be out of there in 20 to 25 minutes, but leave with so much meaning and so much that you can apply to life from that homily and just from the entire mass that it's so much different. So, you know, I think what the Jesuits do really, really well is they are educators, first and foremost, and and missionaries, of course. But the structure of religion plus The amazing educators that they are, they take the two and they weave them so well, but then they also teach you how to be free thinkers outside of that. Just like, you know, Father Skiro giving us access to these many forms of prayer uh, was so incredible. So I want him to have the same foundation or at least access to the same foundation. And my wife, she went to Catholic elementary grammar school and then a Catholic high school as well. So and so we. Kind of know no different my my mom and dad went to a, a Catholic elementary school. well, my mom went to to Ecole Classic, which is where I went, which is just a private school it 's not a Catholic school, um, and then she went to Holy Angels, which is a Catholic school. My dad went to a Catholic school, resurrection of our Lord, which is in New Orleans East, and then he went to Jesuit high School. that was their upbringing as well so um, we we kind of knew no different and but we've you know we 've actually pondered things several times and just we feel like the I think the curriculum is is more dynamic at a Catholic and private school than it is at the public school where it's very rigid. This is what you do, state mandated, federal mandated, you know, as opposed to some wiggle room that your private institutions have. So do you think you'll send
0: your boy to Jesuit? <laughs>
1: That's a great question. So all of his my wife's family, they all went to Saint Paul's. Uncle's, um, you know, great uncles all went to St. Paul's, and you know, since he was a, a born, even before he was born, he was going to Jesuit High School, and uh, and so you know, I, I think in the next few years we're going to have some some decisions to make, whether it be you know St. Paul's or Jesuit or where are we at in our life at that time. So, but I think those would be the two that we'll probably choose from for him. Is he an athlete? He uh, he boxes, so they don't have a boxing team, but yes, he does box, and uh, and he he's, he's a great swimmer, and uh, but no, nothing like really. Crazy right now, and turn like I want him to figure that out for himself. I don't want to. I'm not ever going to force anything on him. I've trained athletes my whole life. I've watched dads living through their sons or daughters, or you know, moms living through the daughters, and I'm not going to be that guy. So you know, like I always tell him if you want to go in the backyard and throw the baseball, want to go hit balls, great. If you want to throw the football, great. If you want me to take you and we'll go swim, you know, I'm a triathlon coach, so I can coach swimming as well. So you know, we can do that, or I can get you on the swim team. But he loves boxing. Uh, this summer, he wants the horseback ride. He's pretty diverse in the things that he likes and the things he wants to try. So, you know, just like an educational foundation, you know, from a a social and extracurricular aspect and and athletic uh, aspect, I want him to be able to experience, you know, a lot and, and then figure it out for himself and I'll help in whatever way I can. I hear so many dads saying as it pertains to sports and their
0: kids that they don't want to be that dad. (laughs) It makes me wonder, well, who out there is that dad if all of these guys are telling me they're not that dad, I had my first experience with being criticized for my parenting recently. There's a a couple next door that has a band perform on their porch every Wednesday. It's really awesome. You saw the park across the street. Everybody brings their lawn chairs and they just chill and listen to music. It's fantastic. Well, it was probably 65 degrees. This is mid-February. And I had my daughter who was only a month old at this time wrapped in a little blanket, and I took her across the street to put some money into the little tip jar. Well, sitting in front of the tip jar, or behind the tip jar, were four or five women, and they started to comment on my daughter. Oh, she's beautiful. Oh, let me see. And so I, I turned her around and showed her to them. Well, there was this one woman who stood up and walked directly at me, and I thought, oh, she's going to to want to hold her or whatever. I've never been in this situation yet. We hadn't really left the house that first month of her life. And she says to me, how old is that baby? And I said, five weeks. And then she went, oh my, like she mouthed, oh my God, as she was turning her back to me and facing the women. And she said, it's 65 degrees out here or whatever. And I was like, yeah. And I thought, if this were my wife or this were most people, they'd be so upset that this woman has, has called them out like that in front of other people and implied that you're a bad parent for having this kid out in 64 degree weather or whatever it was. Anyway, so that was my first bad experience with being called out. I want to go back to the Eckhart Tolle book, The Power of Now. It, it's, I see it as like a self-help guide to spiritual enlightenment. Please don't don't turn this off just because I said spiritual enlightenment. I'll give you my definition of it here in a little bit. Totally suffered from anxiety by day, which a lot of people are struggling with, especially with COVID. I mean, it was probably getting bad before COVID, but you bring on the pandemic and it's gotten even worse. But he suffered from anxiety by day and then depression by night. And the way he worked himself out of it was... This realization that you can and should live entirely in the now. In the present moment is where we should live. It's a powerful concept. You and I are doing it now. We're not concerned about the past and all the memories that we've accumulated. We don't have any anxiety about the future and the the prospects of where our kid's going to go to high school. Because we're focused on this conversation. In that way, it's meditative. I want to know how you perceive time or what he would call the delusion of time how do you think about time or has your perspective changed since reading the book as it regards to the delusion of time
1: yeah great question uh and a deep one at that so the ego is a dysfunction with the present moment because the ego takes us into the future and and it makes it more about us and it takes us into the past and the attachments that we have to the past the future which both are not truly real you know and he talks about and this may have been a new earth but he talks about the dreamer and the dream right and he you know he talks about how you know the 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 dream is an illusion right it's an illusion of the past and it's an illusion of the future just like a dream so he says when you wake up you know in the middle of the night from a dream and you're like man that really felt real well how is that different from the past or, or, the, or any future events that may happen? You know, they're, they're these illusions. And so, but then he talks about as the dreamer. So as the dreamer, the idea is to be awakened to your consciousness, awakened to the now. And when you're conscious and present, you know, in the actual moment, we, we connect to the pure consciousness of this universe, you know, and that pure consciousness, like you say, God is pure consciousness, right? He's all knowing omnipotent. So, you know, it's that spiritual connection that you have and just listening to a Deepak Chopra book uh, the other day, the seven spiritual laws of success, as he was ending, it was really neat because, you know, he, he says, when we ask the question, how can I help? We're connected to our spirit. When we ask the question, how can this serve me? and what's in it for me, then that's when, that's our ego as opposed to our spirit. And then, and you mentioned it a minute ago, but resistance also is the ego, right? It's the mind it's, and so to try to quiet our mind, and then you say, try to quiet the mind, I think the flow state, right? What we're doing right now, we're living in this moment, you know, that that's a quieting of the mind. You know, we we don't have all these crazy thoughts running through our head right now. We're having a conversation, we're living in the moment, we're being present, right? And to kind of bring it full circle too. And you know, when you have, and Napoleon Hill talks about this and Deepak Chopra talks about it in different ways, there's different language. And I think, you know, like I was saying before, I think now I have this language for the way I felt probably back in my early to mid twenties when I was going through these spiritual awakenings and I knew it was happening and I felt God's love and I felt God's presence all around me in me everywhere. But when you have a definiteness of purpose, Right, so uh, Eastern philosophy they called it your dharma or your life path. Right, so your definiteness of purpose, um, which really a lot of people think that it's you you living your purpose. Where I believe truly that when you truly find that purpose and that definiteness of purpose, it's it's actually God's purpose. That is you're you're an instrument to God's purpose for you, and so when you start to truly live from that place, like there's three you know, and Jim Defner says this, but there's, you know, a few different ways that you can kind of look at the world and your situation and, or your predicament, if you will, would be, um, things happen to you, things happen for you, and then things can happen through you. And when you have that definiteness of purpose and you're, and, and you're living God's purpose through you as that instrument, you know, then things, things are happening through you. And then when you have the definite purpose and you, and you, you bring in the rhythm. the habits and the structures that support that purpose so auto suggestion right so I have this definiteness of purpose I've written out my magnificent day I know what that looks like for myself and for my family you know I'm very clear on that and so through and that shines through the subconscious with your definiteness of purpose where you know you're building your habits your rhythm your structure and the ebb and the flow of your daily life is 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 somewhat centered around that definiteness of purpose subconsciously through the auto suggestion and then You know, and and then time. So you bring up time and time becomes at that point your asset, right? So if people have horrible habits and horrible structures in their life, well, time can be a great detriment to their life. It can be a killer. Uh, And Tully says that, right? He says, you know, time kills us all at some point, right? But when that time is an asset and things are happening through you, just like right now, there's a negation of time. And when you're in that negation of time and that flow state, you're living in the now. So there, there is no past, it's not real, it's an illusion. Did it happen? Yes. Can we learn from it? Yes. Can we learn from our failures, our mistakes, our successes? Absolutely. And that brings us to the present moment. Can we, can we know, like my magnificent day that I have written out, You know, where, where do I wanna be? And so you lead from the future, you act in the now. And as human beings, it's so hard for us to do that because we all have a mind, but what is a mind? You can't touch it. You can't taste it. You can't really see it. You know. So is it is it real? I mean, I think we all know it's real, but we can become a prisoner to the mind or we can become the dreamer and we can become awakened and we can become conscious. When your mind or your ego throws out this thought and it crosses the path of your mind and you recognize it and you look at it objectively, like when you can actually laugh. At your mind and laugh at the ego you're becoming more awake and more conscious
0: God is that true there are ways that you can worry less and have less regret in your life and it's three things when you realize one that life is just a series of present moments two Most of our, if not all of our emotional and psychological pain stems from a resistance, there's that word again, to things that we can't change. And so being able to distinguish between that which you can change and can't change is huge. And it would behoove you to, uh, behoove all of us to deliberately sit and work to distinguish between what is and what isn't in our control. It would make such a huge impact on your life. And of course, the more you do it, the more benefit you're going to get. And I'm a proponent of this idea that there are compounding benefits to be had in, in all of the important aspects of life. Well, there's probably not much more important than gaining control of your mind and... So if what we're talking about to listeners sounds a little bit woo, which is what the kids call it these <laughs> days, you're probably one of those people, too, that, that sneers at cliches. Well, I'm someone who internalizes cliches, and it's benefited me greatly. So when you talk to someone and they're mocking clichés I, I the first thing i think is oh man that sucks for you like you'd be so much better off if you thought about that cliché you think i'm simple minded but i wish you knew that i've spent some time with this cliché and internalized it and really made it work for me and i think you could too but when jesus started the christian church when he got uh, 300 people to follow him and 700 people laughed he didn't have another mass just to see if he could try to convince the 700 people to stay with him no he focused on the 300 that that believed in the message that it resonated with so yeah one would be just understanding that life is a series of present moments two that our psychological and emotional pain stems from a resistance to things that you can't change and then three would be this idea that you can free yourself from pain By doing what you talked about, which is observing your mind and learning to laugh at the mind, understanding that you're not the thinker, observe the thinker and have a laugh at his expense, it will change your life, it'll change how you interact with people, they'll see a pleasant disposition about you that wasn't there before, and it all is derived from putting the work in. Some people have it more naturally, I think, than others, but... I think the rich get richer in this regard, too. The people who need it most are the ones that are laughing at at cliches and spirituality, and the word enlightenment is not something that they would ever even wonder about because they probably don't have the intellectual curiosity to go there and even consider it. What if someone is struggling with gaining control of their directing mind how does one go about freeing themselves from their mind
1: to sit which is one of the hardest things for people to do is sit in silence you know to maybe focus on if if someone could teach them but to focus on the breath like father skiro he would you know we had a prayer retreat and he and I, and I've had trouble going to sleep sometimes, you know, when I was younger in college and, you know, I'd focus on the, uh, a, a part of the nose or like a piece of hair, like where the air was traveling inside the nose. So it became this one pointed focus, which is what meditation is, right? It's sitting, it's, it's a one pointed focus. And when I say focus, you're not striving to focus on anything other than just being right, being, being present. And when that happens, like when I teach yoga and, you know, I, I, would talk to my students about when we're in a Savasana or we're in a meditation and you know, you, you have an objective mind. So, you know, you're, as a human being, you're gonna have thoughts, but the more you practice that solitude, the more you practice that silence, there's gonna be spaces between those thoughts. That space is really your true nature, your, your, true, your true consciousness, um, your true spirit. And when you have those thoughts, there's your human nature right and but it's looking at those thoughts objectively and not Creating subjective emotional attachment to them because that's where the anxiety or their depression or the where the mind is controlling somebody that that's what happens is we subjectively attach to it and then the emotional response comes up as opposed to you know if you think about it if a thought flows through your mind and it's one that again you can laugh at you know you can laugh at it because you're being objective you know you're like yeah, gotcha all right I see where you're trying to go with this but I'm gonna let you go and you let the thought go you don't emotionally attach to it so. I think to, you know, if you can sit in silence and and it's it's a practice, right? So maybe you start out with a minute, maybe then you work to two minutes. Maybe you do that once or twice a day, you know, morning and evening. Like that's what, you know, Deepak Chopra, he talks about 30 minutes in the morning, 30 minutes in the evening. It's tough, and especially in our American culture. But, you know, that's what he taught his kids also as well. And he told them, he says, don't worry about, you know, wealth and money. He says, just worry about finding your Dharma or your life's path, right? So, you know, I think teaching, especially our, our youth early, to to sit in solitude, to be, to be present is is really key, whatever that pathway is, right? Um, you used a, a phrase a minute ago, um, maybe spiritual enlightenment, and I think, in woo, right, but I think that spiritual enlightenment is, there are different pathways and avenues to spiritual enlightenment in quotes, you know, what is that spiritual enlightenment is, there's different pathways to God, and that's why there are so many different religions, because there, people find that path however they do, you know, yeah.
0: have some sort of military training going on because I've been hearing this every day, like ten times a day.
1: I went... It's, I was coming across the causeway as a fighter jet came over when I was on the phone. I was like, whoa! I mean, it yeah, it's
0: usually easier. a lot louder than that. That doesn't really sound like a military jet, does it?
1: No. But who knows, man. Close to bell chase, too, though, right? Mm-hmm. Is there something there? I wouldn't... Air Force Base. I mean, a uh, Naval Base. Oh, okay. And my buddy's, uh, his... My buddy's, uh, Cardinal. His, uh his brother-in-law flies stealth fighter jets and he is actually a pilot for Southwest now, but they started a reserve wing specifically for him because he's so smart and he's a commander of the reserve wing. So he said, I'm going to fly for Southwest when you're retired. And like, you can't do that. And he goes, Oh no, I'm retiring and I'm going to fly for Southwest, you know, unless you're going to pay me more. So they said, no, what we're going to do is we're going to start a reserve wing just for you. So, wow. But, um, but what I was saying though, is just because as a Catholic, in quotes for myself, who am I to tell a Hindu or a Buddhist that their pathway to spiritual enlightenment or God is wrong or any other religion for that matter? You know, just a Christian or, you know, and you hear that a lot in the cat, especially down here in the South is like, oh, they're one of those pop up churches on the corner, you know? Um, and it's, a, it's just a non denominal church, but yet it's still a Christian church. So, how are they wrong? for finding their pathway to God and their virtues and their character and their integrity and all the things that you know, we should l- do to live Christ-like, it, that spiritual enlightenment is just everybody has their different pathway in, in finding it you know, to their enlightenment in God. I have a buddy who
0: always feels the need to be around people. And so I've encouraged him to try to find some time for solitude. And he reported to me the other day dude, you'd be proud of me. I've been working in some solitude two or three times a week. It's been one of my goals all year. And I was like, wow, man, I'm, I'm proud of you. Tell me, how's it, how's it going? And he said, well, I'm usually just texting, you know, the whole time. But and I'm like, what do you, what do you mean? It's like, well, you, yeah, you know, that I take that time and make sure that I'm keeping in contact with my buddies, you know, because you talk about building strong relationships. And, and I'm like, dude, solitude is, is no phone. You can't have your phone with you. He's like, I can't have my phone? I I don't know (laughs) if I could do that. I couldn't believe that he thought solitude was uh, hanging out with your phone as long as you were alone. Something else you said that I, I believe, too, is the fact that we're an instrument for God or a vessel through which good things will hopefully flow. I was giving a talk, this is probably a month ago, and one of the kids asked me, he said, what is the best way to get good at public speaking? And then one of the other kids chimed in right away and said, you have to do it. And I was like, yeah, that's right. And then so the kid asked, well, how do you keep from getting nervous? And I said, well, if, if you're nervous, you're probably not prepared well enough. That's one. But two, if you just ask God to shine through you, or be a vessel through which the good shit comes out, you're just there in service. How could you be nervous? You know what I mean? So, hey, let let the good stuff come through me to help these people. And if it doesn't, we'll work and get better for it next time. But why? how could I be nervous if I just want to be a, that vessel?
1: And, and we all have that divinity, a piece of divinity inside of us, right? And then it's all around us. Uh, reading a book, The Untethered Soul, and he talks about how he goes, we're all so anxious and we're in a hurry to do things and we're worried about this and worried about that. He goes, and we're we're a, a, just a speck on this planet that's literally rotating in the middle of space while all this other stuff is going on. And we're worried about like not getting a coffee at Starbucks, you know, and how that's going to ruin our day. But we're, but we're not worried at all about just being this, this person on this massive planet that's turning in the <laughs> middle of the cosmos, right? So, yeah. perspective.
0: We sent some sort of shuttle in 1979 off into the ether. And if I remember correctly, we, we filled up this shuttle with, like, must have been albums and different artifacts of how we live. And... The assumption, I guess, is that some alien planet is going to land on some alien planet or whatever. But one of the things that it did was took pictures of Earth once it got several million miles away. Have you ever seen that picture? They call it the the pale blue dot. (laughs) It's amazing. So if you just Google the pale blue dot, it'll show this sea of darkness, just pure black. And then there's this tiny little speck of blue. And they're like, everything you've ever known and will ever know is on this tiny blue speck. And yeah, that's just fascinating. Oh, and as far as meditating before bed, that is such a win-win proposition because you'll either have a deep meditation or you'll fall into a deep sleep. So I believe meditating prior to bed is, is ideal if you can do it. So yeah. I, I've never been one to be able to do it thirty minutes in the morning and thirty minutes at night. But I'm I'm slowly getting there. I used to do ten minutes and now I'm up to fifteen, so
1: we'll see. <laughs> well that's and that's how I, when i teach yoga and we would go into savasana and we would do our final, you know, meditation, dead corpse pose. <laughs> People would come up after class and be like, oh, my God, I I fell asleep when I was in Savasana. And I told them, I would tell them, I'd say, well, the goal is not to truly fall 100% asleep, but be on the verge and be in that state between being awake and being asleep. And there were several times where I was literally teaching. And I I would catch myself and I would come back and I'm like, how long was I sleeping for? And I'd blink my eyes a couple of times and I would come up and I would finish the guided meditation, you know, with my words, obviously, as a teacher and instructor. But I would always come back to and go, oh, my God, how long? And I wasn't sleeping. I was just in that 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 middle point between, you know, awake and asleep. And so there's that negation of time, right? And that flow state, whatever you want to call it. And so, you know, it was just like coming back up. So to your point, I don't you know, and it's interesting, I don't necessarily, I do breathe deeply a lot of times, but usually when I hit the pillow, like I'm just, I'm pretty much almost out, but I I do need to do that a little bit more and kind of come back to that, that pranayama before I go to sleep and just let that happen.
0: For a lot of years, If I couldn't sleep, let's say I'd been laying in bed for an hour and a half, I would remember to pray, and then that would be the last thing I remember of the night, meaning that I fell asleep. And when I started meditating and just reflecting on my years of prayer, that's probably what helped me to believe, and not that it's right or wrong, but it it helped me to start thinking that God was internal, because it worked 100% of the time. Oh, I can't sleep, I'm going to pray, and then I would fall asleep. So it's like I'm talking to my internal self, in a way. Anyway, that's, that's got to be really woo for people. Is there anything else we should talk about as it pertains to Toli and the power of now?
1: Yeah, so having gone through you know, his literature yourself, can you speak to disidentifying with the ego?
0: Yes. Diminishing the ego is something I've worked hard to do totally refers to the egoic mind and When used properly we know that the mind is an amazingly powerful tool Like the internet (laughs) the problem is most of us don't have control of our directing mind the same way many of us end up mindlessly scrolling social media we're beholden to our mind instead we're slaves to our mind which you mentioned and if you're wondering if I'm describing you dear listener there's a way that you can tell whether this is true of you or not and you would as we're saying find a find a quiet place do it before bed wherever you can find some solitude legs crossed make sure your back is straight breathe deeply in and out and just observe your mind check in with it and see what's going on. Most people will be amazed at how out of control their mind is. It's this old adage of monkeys running around throwing feces at each other in your noggin. That they say that for a reason because most of us are going through that. We have an internal monologue that never shuts the F up. Ideally, after consistent practice, which is consistently sitting down and doing this work of meditation you get to a place where you can not only tame the mental chatter but and this is this is probably most important as it pertains to the ego you don't want to identify with those things that most of us associate with i such as job title how much money you make education athletic ability when i quote unquote retired in 2015 this was one of the biggest obstacles i had to overcome not associating myself with a job title or how much money i made i so prided myself on how much money i made and it was it was in my journal every year my goal was to make more and more money every year so i did everything in my power to ensure that that happened when we went through a recession i had a second job you know whatever it took and if you're identifying with those things then what you're doing is you're getting your sense of self from external sources, and that is not what you want to be doing. I mean, how many people nowadays are, are getting their sense of self-worth and validation from other people? And how many likes they get on social media or how many comments? It's, that's not good. That's going to lead to the same thing that the author, Eckhart Tolle, was suffering from, which is anxiety by day and depression by night. One of the reasons that children can go through the world with such a pleasant demeanor is because they don't have all of these accumulated experiences that they're brooding over. Watch a dog and see how present state aware they are. They're not concerned about the girl that screwed them over in the past, uh, the time you didn't get promoted at work. They're not thinking about any of that. They don't have any dread of what's to come. They don't know if they're gonna have to go to the vet the next day. So there are things that we can learn from other living beings that we would be wise to incorporate into our own lives. As long as you identify with your mind in this way, then the path to enlightenment is always going to be blocked. And enlightenment in this context just means transcending your mind, transcending your thoughts. In an enlightened state, you're still going to use your mind The difference is someone who has worked to diminish their ego they can lay aside all of the BS and they can quiet their mind when they want to on cue and that's a powerful place to be that's gonna really portend well for your personal growth and development and just whatever successes you're you're wanting in this world it kind of starts there if you've ever been around somebody who's been on silent retreat or has spent a lot of time meditating a lot of times they just have this poise and this calm demeanor that almost manifests as like a, a chronic smile. It's like you're talking to somebody who smiles with their eyes. And I, you, I think we should all strive to get there. It's such a powerful place to be. Don't, don't continue to be enslaved to your mind. And unfortunately, many people don't realize just how enslaved they are. And it would take this solitude, this sitting with your thoughts that we're talking about, monitor your thoughts, get to a point where you're finally laughing at your thoughts, and then hey, you're, you're pretty much halfway to enlightenment, as far as I know, you know I'm, a, I'm an amateur on this stuff, what do I know, but it's, uh, it's working for me, and it, I've had success with it, so I wanna share it. Is this something that you talk about in your coaching business?
1: Absolutely, you know, and it's so it's so all the things we're talking about are so simple like sit in silence But yet as human beings we make it so complex because it's the ego and it's the egoic structure You know of the mind um, that makes it complex and so as human beings we can really complicate things a lot we if we were just more present more aware and you know the things that you're talking about and more and what that brings is that calmness and that confidence And then to a degree with that, the competence of certain things, right? We talk about enlightenment. I don't think enlightenment is just all of a sudden the state you stumble upon. I think there are several enlightenments over the course of life that when put together, you can find that calm and that peace. That really is truly, like when you can find that, there's there's very little that can jar you and can give you that anxiety and that stress that so much of our world has today. So yes, absolutely. We talk about this in in our health coaching practice because, you know, health is, you know, people think of health in terms of physical health, but really the trilogy, if you think about it, of optimal health is healthy body, healthy mind, healthy finances. So generally a lot of times a, a large percentage of the time when people come into our program and you know, they, they hire us as their coach, It's generally for healthy body. You know, people have physical pain points. Whether they realize it or not, they have mental pain points because of those physical pain points and vice versa. Uh, And the things that we're talking about too, their mind is so busy. Again, whether they're enlightened to the fact that they have those pain points in their mind, Being that our health is our foundation, backbone, and platform from which all else is possible, when people are healthier, they're generally more spiritual. They generally are better parents. They are generally better coworkers or business owners or philanthropists. The people who are not very healthy are tormented inside in some way, shape, or form. Yes, these are things we 100% talk about therein lies the art of coaching right so there's a there's an art and a science it doesn't matter whether it's me as a triathlon coach the science is the physiology we know that the body responds in this way shape or form to this stimulus uh, in X Y Z if we do X Y will, will likely happen well the art of coaching is how you apply that science and what we know from a scientific perspective to each individual and the relationship also that you have with that individual, based on your personal your personality, your knowledge base as well. So you know the the structure of what we do as health coaches is it's scientifically proven, backed and repeated over and over and over again. But the art is is that how do we work with each individual because they're also different. You know, genetics, upbringing, conditioning, all those different things, and then and then how do you work to help empower those people to be the best versions of themselves? And that's truly what what the, the idea of the program is, is to help people find a path to empowerment or enlightenment, if you will, to being their best in every way. You know? And does that happen overnight? Absolutely not. And should we ever stop striving to be our best and be 1% better every day? Absolutely not. We should continually work on that and cultivate it. It's like anything else. It's a practice. You know, sitting in silence is a practice. You start with a minute. You know, that minute may turn into five. It may turn into two. It may turn into a minute and a half, you know, whatever it may be. But it's a practice. It's a. It's, it's the the repetition of what you're doing that's going to eventually end up allowing you to to be the best version of yourself, and when we become the best version of ourselves, it's not just for us, and like it does what they taught us to be men, men for others. And a lot of people, including myself, you know, for a lot of years of my life, I put myself to a degree in certain aspects on the back burner. Because I wanted to be a man for others. I wanted to help others. You hear a lot of, you know, moms say this. I've been so busy worried about my kids and my family and my husband. And, you know, that and and, and I've never, I haven't put myself first. And they start to put themselves first and they start to become healthier. And what they realize is, is that by, by spending the time to become the best versions of themselves, they are showing up for the world as their best and everybody benefits. So it's like when you win, everybody wins. Yeah,
0: there's a reason they tell you to put your mask on first, right, on the airplane when it's going down. Put your mask on despite having your three-month-old daughter sitting next to you. You can't take care of her properly unless you first take care of yourself. Self-sacrifice isn't all that noble. Self-development for others is more noble than self-sacrifice. So, you're right. We hear that a lot. I've given my life for my kids. I've sacrificed everything. Well, it would have been better had you developed yourself in order to manage all the things that you had going on, and then there would, you would have thrived more than likely, and we all would have been better for it. The ego wants to want more than it wants to have. One of my favorite questions to ask in the fun questions portion of the show, which we'll get, late, get to later... Is, is not wanting something just as good as having it. So, I may ask you that later. In The New Earth, which I have on Kindle, I, I was telling you last night that it's locked inside my Kindle. I did get my Kindle open. In The New Earth, he says, the, the shallow satisfaction of having is replaced by more wanting. And this is the psychological need for more. More things for us to identify with which is what I was alluding to earlier he says in some cases the psychological need for more or the feeling of not enough that is so characteristic of the ego becomes transferred to the physical level and so turns into insatiable hunger or what you're talking about is I I assume it can turn into physical pain when you're struggling with the ego when you feel like you're not enough and maybe that gets into emotional and psychological pain as well as physical pain. He says some egos know what they want and pursue their aim with with grim and ruthless determination. Here he'd be talking about Genghis Khan or Stalin or Hitler or Mao. But what happens when you get people with egos of their size, which is obviously the most ginormous, outlandish example that I can think of, but the energy behind their insatiable desires is met with an opposing energy of equal intensity, and then you just have mutual destruction. So most egos have conflicting wants, and they want different things at different times. The last thing that they want, and they're probably not considering this, I doubt Adolf Hitler was a meditator, the last thing that they would ever desire is the present moment. And that's where we need to be if you're going to truly enjoy your life. Everything we know, everything we love, everything we've experienced, everything we will experience in our lives, it's all a creation inside our own mind. That's one of the reasons I wanted to get you on today, because I know how big you are on this stuff in personal health and well-being is it fair to say it all starts with your mind?
1: 100%. Your mind governs, you can let it govern everything else, or you can be the dreamer, and you can laugh at your mind, you can be more objective. The, rea- the reality, or the, I guess it's a, really a harsh reality, is that we're human beings, so we can't escape it fully without deep practice, It's making a decision and I think when you're talking about like, you know Stalin and Genghis Khan and and those guys there's such a deep yearning and they get so Hypnotic in this one realm of what they're trying to accomplish that they lose sight of everything else And that can be very very tormenting in a variety of different ways Like you just said, you know the mental the physical the you know, the emotional all those different things, you know, it's like if you get so hyper focused on Making you know a million dollars a year, you know, like you were talking about and you know and all those things It's like well, what about what's going on right in front of you? You know rather (laughs) at this at this present time. What about enjoying your kids? I mean, how many times do you hear about these big business moguls who they're not present in their kids life? I mean that was a major pain point for me I was very present very present when I was present But I was also spending 12 to 14 hours in the gym every day doing what I needed to do for my family My dad taught me a lot of good grit, and you do what you need to do, and, you know, he's a great role model and example, and mom and dad had me when I, they were, you know, dad was 19, mom was 18, dad was playing ball at Tulane at the time, you know, so I got, I watched the grit, I watched him on scholarship at Tulane, but working a graveyard shift at, you know, the Shell Station, and painting on the weekends, and very, slept very little, getting a civil engineering degree at at Tulane, and, You know, so I learned a lot of those principles from him and listening to him, but also watching him and observing him. So for me to be able to just shove that emotional stuff to the side and say, I'm going to trudge through this and do it, but sacrificing what, you know, sacrificing years of my son's life where I only brought him to school two or three times because... I had to be present in my gym, training the people that I was training because they didn't want to train with anybody else, you know, and if I wasn't there, then we weren't bringing revenue into our household. So, you know, you look at these big business moguls or somebody like me in that predicament or, you know, in that position, and I was doing what I needed to do for my family and for our household, but again, at what cost, whereas now I have the ability it's almost like time has, if you want to call it time, whatever, you know, has slowed down to be able to be more present, to be there and wake up with my family in the morning, to bring my son to school if I'd like to, to 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 be more of the, the captain of my ship to where I can make time blocks to talk to clients and coach them. I can coach them from anywhere in the world not yearn so much on one thing that you lose sight of everything else is so important. Keeping everything in perspective and not missing the things that are coming right across your face at the time that they're coming across because you may never have that moment back again.
0: So true. Confucius said, a healthy man wants a thousand things, a sick man wants only one. Blaise Pascal said that all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. And so we got to know when to sit and be content with what we have about a week ago we were in Houston and I went for a walk with one of my best friends this is like at three o'clock in the afternoon and he was talking about a big investment that he was about to make and this job opportunity that was proposed to him even though he's retired but sometimes there's a number at which you'd be willing to go back to work. It's something I consider sometimes, and it's something that he is considering sometimes too. So I don't know how much of this he wants me sharing, but let me just say that one of the things I said to him is that all of the dissatisfaction that you may feel, any anxiety that you're going to run out of money, you made the decision to retire, it was, it was something that was well thought out. It wasn't impulsive. Many, many people our age are grinding 12, 14 hours a day with the dream of doing exactly what we're doing right now, which is having a walk with your buddy on a Tuesday afternoon at 3 o'clock.
1: And that, that time freedom, or just freedom in general. Are
0: you a fan of Jordan Peterson?
1: hmm Have deep. you?
0: Yeah. Have you read Twelve Rules for Life? Yep. An antidote to chaos.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm in. Yeah, but I'm in Rule Seven right now. It's taken okay. me a while because I read and digest him. He needs to be digested. It is a dense book.
0: Not as dense as the book he wrote thirty min, thirty years ago called Maps of Meaning. I think he tried to make it more accessible to the layperson, you and I. But it is a philosophical, self-help book that gives the reader an uncommon perspective of human development and self-discipline and motivation and philosophy. And I happen to believe that one of the reasons he resonates so much with young people, young men especially, is due to a lack of meaning and people not being brought up in the Catholic Church, for example. In the intro to the book, he says, we require rules And standards and values alone and together. We're pack animals. We're beasts of burden. We must bear a load to justify our miserable existence." So he was a student of Nietzsche and Jungian psychology and Nietzsche believed this too, that you have to find meaning in your suffering. And these are messages that people had not, young men especially, had not heard before. We're fed this diet of rights and it's, it's all B.S. You know, what Peterson talks about is, is there's meaning and responsibility. One of the appeals of Peterson for me is his view of happiness because he believes that happiness can't be pursued directly. It's more of a byproduct of pursuing that which is meaningful. And so it shouldn't be the primary aim, happiness. Let it happen indirectly as a byproduct of pursuing something meaningful and meaning comes from responsibility. And again Nietzsche believed this too So much of society gets this wrong in my opinion Because I'll give you an example. I have a Facebook friend that just a few days ago posted that he has his daughter Verbalize every night before bed that she's beautiful and that she's smart and I've, I think that self-worth, self-esteem, although his attempt is admirable, I think it's earned. I think you have to work for it. I don't think you can just give your kids self-esteem by reminding them that they're beautiful every day or that they're smart. Better to spend time in a book or in the gym working toward strength and beauty and, or intelligence and beauty. I think you've got to put in the work and I've, I've always believed that I know joy because I know it's opposite I went through some tough times as a kid and from that struggle I I think it's made me a joyful person he also talks about order versus chaos and the balance between the two and and that's where we find the meaning that is life and it's inevitable suffering
1: diamonds you wanna, are made under immense pressure
0: yes so true Iron sharpens iron, maybe we can go through his rules and just discuss them one by one. Sure. why don't we do half maybe the first half does that sure. sound good Stand up straight with your shoulders back is rule one. What does that mean?
1: We talks about the lobsters, so to me, you know taken away from that is is that you know there's there's this pecking order in in nature you know which we're part of and in, and in the universe and in the cosmos specifically and especially with certain animals mammals crustaceans and the lobsters you know in the way that that the you know scientists studied the lobsters and their hierarchy and all those different things it's the same with us as human beings having this pecking order in society in our culture if you will in the human culture in our small cultures where we live and you really have a couple different people. You have those who are they conform, they're drifters, meaning that they don't they don't think past a certain point. They get to a point and they get stuck, and they just they say, "Okay, they settle." Basically, this is this is what it is. And then you have a, a free thinking person who goes beyond that and always asks, "Like, what's next? Why?" You know, you are truly trying to find that meaning that you are talking about. Which, you know, kind of going back to what we were talking about before, which, you know, that meaning is a definiteness of purpose. And when you find that purpose and that meaning, like you just said, you know, happiness is something that is a byproduct of that, where God is living through you as an instrument. And and he, you know, to, to quote him and what he said, he says, embrace being and work for its furtherance and improvement. So this constant yearning for personal growth and development. And continuing to get better every single day is going to allow you to likely find a better place in that pecking order, whatever that better place is for you. Now, some people are content with being, I'll say, a drifter. I'm not trying to judge anyone or classify someone, but we are talking about a pecking order here, right? So some of those people are content with being where they are and they are completely happy being in that place, or at least they say that they are. Whether they are or not, you know, I think that it's. I think it's innately in us as human beings to want to strive to be better. I think people get stuck and they don't know how to get out of that rut. <laughs> but standing tall and, and with your shoulders back, you know, you approach the world in this confident way and you continually, you know, again, strive to, to improve and get better. Yeah, I love the the
0: lobster example because it's one of those things that people would mock. Hell, that's some of the the first things that are said about Jordan Peterson when they're talking shit about him, they're like, oh, yeah, the lobster guy, but there's a reason that he's talking about the lobster. They prove that hierarchies have been around forever, and you will fall somewhere in the social ladder, so to speak, but to, so, since we're all beholden to this idea of hierarchy, well, how do you approach the world? How do you conduct yourself in the world? Well, you stand up with your shoulders back. And you accept the responsibilities of life which is where money uh, money which is where meaning is derived from so get your posture right don't hunch don't droop because we all think that person is pathetic so stand tall speak your mind put your desires forward as if you had a right to them or at least you have the same right as others dare to be dangerous he says rule two is treat yourself like you're someone you are responsible for helping in the book he uses the example of a dog so a lot of times you'll feed your dog better than you feed yourself but if you were responsible for the health of your grandmother let's say if you got to the gym and it benefited your grandmother you'd get your ass in the gym if you ate vegetables And that benefited your grandmother you'd eat them, but a lot of times we neglect to do this for ourselves So I think he's saying treat yourself like you would treat someone that you really care for and love Because so often we tend to treat our dogs and other people better than ourselves But how do you think about what he's saying in rule two?
1: yeah I think it brings it back to what we were talking about about the you know the mom or the dad that's you know doing for everybody else but not doing for themselves right yeah. and and I that the dog resonates with me um, there was another example in there too about how you know somebody goes to a doctor and they prescribe a medication a third of the people are not going to get it filled a third are not going to take it and then there was the other third I think may comply they may take take the medication right so it goes back to that. Putting ourselves first because when we're better, everybody around us is is better. So we have to take care of ourselves in order to be able to take care of our grandmother or anybody else better. You know, if if we want to take care of their health, what good are are we to them if we're not fully healthy ourselves? And, you know, when we're at our best, then we show up as such for the world. It's a great example. You mentioned
0: the untethered soul earlier. I'm reading that to my daughter now. I read her children's books, too, but... I found that if I read the book expressively to her then she knows no difference between a book that I'm reading for my own personal growth and development and a children's book so if you haven't tried that whatever book you want to read read it to your infant and uh, have some fun with it rule three make friends with people who want the best for you what do you do when somebody you've been friends with for 15 to 20 years starts to flash a little jealousy and envy of successes that you're having or maybe even they have some resentment and you can see it in their micro facial expressions they're they're not excited for you you can see it on their face how do you deal with that
1: something that I have dealt with over the past few years and some of them can be very very close to you very very close to you but It it comes back to being your best self you know we're the average of the the five people we hang around most so if you're hanging around with someone who's pessimistic or negative whether you want to pick that up or not it's gonna come through your subconscious and you're gonna start picking up on those things and you start becoming you know molded and melded in that way unbeknownst to you to a degree unless you're very aware and you're very conscious and you're very present however healthy surroundings or one of our six macro habits of health. And probably in the six, I had four of them down pretty good. Healthy mind, I needed more work on that. And then the healthy surroundings, what I thought were healthy surroundings when I really tried to step back and, and look at it from like a 20 or 30,000 foot view. But maybe I'm accepting that because of how close these people are to me and because of they. Surely they have my best interest in mind. Surely they, they're they not envious or jealous or, you know, they're not judging me. But when I looked at it from that 20 or 30,000 foot view, what I saw was something different. And so I can be around those people, but I'm not going to be willingly around them as much as I once was when I had that perception of it, as opposed to the 20 or 30,000 foot view. I tell people this all the time, people that I coach say, you know, pay attention when you have successes and people don't clap for you when you win and you know and and conversely are you clapping for those people when they win too you know and with no judgment like man if you make five million dollars tomorrow i'm happy for you like and i don't there's no jealousy there's no judgment there's no envy of of what you have because the most important thing that we have is the present moment and it is our life a couple weekends ago my buddy came down from michigan and we had a he's a health coach as well and a chiropractor and we had a, a get together at my house and one of our other friends who's also a health coach uh, and my best friend she bought a bottle of uh stags leap artemis so we had a bunch of people at the house and i just said i said why don't you open that it's a special occasion and so he did so the next day he brings me a magnum of of Camus, and he says i wanted to replace this in your you know collection you got this was your only magnum i don't want and they didn't have stags leap artemis and so we had, we had poured glasses for everyone, and we we had all had like a, a half a glass of wine or whatever it was, and um, it, out of another bottle that I brought, a regular bottle, and there was a lot of people there, and um, and so he's like, "Man, should we just go open one of his bottles of wine?" We were at my other friend's house, and I said, "No, man," I was like, "You bought you brought me that bottle of Camus," and he's like, "But you have to save that for a special occasion, like when it's, you know, I mean that that that's a Camus, it's a Magnum, it's," and I was like. I don't know if I'm even going to be here tomorrow, man. So this is a special occasion that you're here from Michigan. We're celebrating. He's like, I really need to start thinking more like that. And I'm (laughs) like, well, that's it, man. You know, you have to to live presently. So yes.
0: What you said about surrounding yourself with five people, you're the average of the five people you hang around with. I think that's even starting to become cliche because people mention it so much. And so my fear when something becomes cliche is that people are going to start ignoring it. But it's so important. We don't realize how susceptible we are to the influence of those we're most around. And it really is illustrated for me when I travel. You go to a different country and you realize how similar the people are there to each other. And then you think back on America and realize, oh, people think this way because we're mimetic. So the French philosopher Gerard came up with this mimetic theory, which the premise is just that we don't know what we want. We just kind of copy what other people want. And you see this the world over everywhere you go. How could they be so different from people in a country across the pond? Well, they're just copying each other over there the way we copy each other in America. And if you're not exposed to this other way of being, then you don't even realize how much of your... Behavior and thought patterns are just conditioning from your environment. So it's really helpful to experience that. And if you're still hanging out with somebody because you've known them since high school, that is not a good enough reason to continue hanging out with them. So you've got to slowly phase these people out. There's a quote from the book. It says If you surround yourself with people who support your upward aim, They will not tolerate your cynicism and destructiveness. They will instead encourage you when you do good for yourself and others and punish you carefully when you do not. This will help you to bolster your resolve to do what you should do in the most appropriate and careful manner. People who are not aiming up will do the opposite. They will become jealous when you succeed or do something pristine. They will withdraw their presence or support or actively punish you for it. They will, they will override your accomplishment with a past action, real or imaginary, of their own. <laughs> yeah, overriding your accomplishment with something that they've done. Those are the one-uppers. Maybe they're trying to test you to see if your resolve is real, to see if you are genuine, but mostly they are dragging you down because your new improvements cast their faults in an even dimmer light. And this is looking in the mirror, as you said. Rule four, compare yourself with who you were yesterday, not with who someone else is today. You must see yourself as a stranger, and then you must get to know yourself. When you see yourself as a stranger, that's, is that sort of the 20,000 to 30,000 foot, foot view that you're talking about, more of a macro perspective and seeing yourself objectively?
1: Absolutely. This is a meditation we actually do in yoga where, you know, you'll be I do this with people sometimes where I say, "Okay, in your in your mind's eye, step outside of yourself. Look at that person on the mat. You know, are they are they anxious? Are they sad? Are they mad? Are they grieving? Or, you know, what what is that person experiencing right now? Are they experiencing just being are they being present? Are they peaceful? Look at yourself and just take inventory objectively. Don't don't attach to it. Just take inventory objectively of where you're at. So, yes, it's that that awakened dreamer that's conscious, that's looking down, you know, on themselves. And it's Coach Wally Poniff. I don't know if you remember. uh, You probably heard Wally. So he's one of my best friends. And we graduated from Jesuit together, but we grew up together.
0: I don't want to be a badass here, but we do have listeners in Scotland and New Zealand. So
1: tell the Wally Poniff story. Sure. Yeah. So Wally was such a great man and, uh, you know, just such a peaceful human being. I mean, almost like a saint and him and I were, he was always just such a great leader and example in so many different ways. Uh, even when we were young, young kids and a lot of it, and I'll, I'll come back full circle on this, but a lot of it is because of his, his father and the way that Coach Wally would speak about, you know, being a leader and just being a good human being and opening doors for people and yes sir, no sir, please thank you, um, hello and goodbye, you know, all the little th- the little things that are really big things, you know, in today's world, But but that's, Wally just had this peacefulness and calmness about him naturally and he was such a spiritual young man and Eucharistic minister, but amazing baseball player, just very talented, started as a freshman in high school, on a, at a high school where you, I mean, very rarely did people start on varsity until they were juniors and seniors because of the talent we had. And he played third base as a freshman, as a sophomore, he played third base again because we had a senior who was a shortstop, um, and he wasn't the fastest guy in the world, but had an amazing glove, and he didn't have the best arm in the world either, but he was just so efficient, and he was just a technician at what he did. But after his sophomore year, he signed with LSU, Louisiana State University, to play baseball there, and so like he was the guy, right? So junior year, he ends up starting at uh, at shortstop, and junior and senior year, and uh, and him and I again were like you know best friends and captains, and he ended up going to LSU. And after this was our second year in college, uh, that summer he had passed away unexpectedly. Just he came home to train for a couple of weeks and crazy thing is I was at Kansas State at the time and normally when I would drive back I would stop and see him and this particular time I was actually moving back because I decided to transfer back to Tulane University in New Orleans so I had to move my stuff and we went a completely different way to come back because we made it a road trip one of my buddies came up but normally I would stop at their apartment on the way back from Baton Rouge, and I mean on, when I was coming through Baton Rouge, and I didn't this time. And then when I got home, we had planned on getting together like in a couple weeks. Well, he ended up passing away unexpectedly in his bed, and his dad and well his brother found him, Nick, his younger brother, and then his his you know dad came up, and it was it was devastating for him. And when we were at his funeral at Jesuit, you know, in the chapel of North American Martyrs, which is the big church at Jesuit. Yeah, I get goosebumps thinking about this, but his brother Nick was up on at the, you know, on the pulpit and he was given the eulogy and I haven't, like, I was sobbing like a baby. I don't know how he did it other than just divine intervention, the way he was able to keep his composure. He literally looked like his brother up there and sounded like him, his mannerisms, everything. And it, and it was, it was a very emotional experience. And so his dad is like, coach Wiley's like a, a father, a grandpa, uncle to me. And he always used to tell us, don't compare, compete. So in, in this particular rule, that always resonates with me is, is, you know, don't compare yourself to other people. Compete with who you were yesterday, like he says, to be better today. And that's what I tell people, you know, let's try to get at least 1% better every day.
0: Yeah, I think a journal is a powerful tool for comparing yourself with yourself. And I believe it's Charlie Munger who said that never fool yourself And remember that you're the easiest person to fool. I think where a journal helps here is with decision making or you don't want to suffer from hindsight bias and think that you believed something a couple of years ago before you made that decision and look in your journal and realize, wait a minute, I didn't believe that. So it just helps you to be honest with yourself and in a way builds your integrity because you'll find yourself lying to people saying, oh, I, I knew this would happen. Well, no, you didn't. If you look back at your own handwriting, and it's, it's powerful to see in your handwriting that you thought a certain way and maybe didn't remember that. Yeah, I'm a big advocate for journaling. But uh, that's really sad. He's buried near my, one of my grandparents, so I see his grave when I go to visit my grandparents' grave. He, I think, was a year before me. So we played LSU in 01, 02, 03. He was probably there in 2000 and 2001. Does that sound right?
1: Yep. We graduated Jesuit in 99, so his first season would have been 2000, spring of 2000, and then 01. 2000, when I was after my freshman year, freshman or sophomore, we we ended up driving up to Omaha to see him, and Coach Wally had tickets for us, and we were sitting right behind the dugout, and I remember cheering for me. He kind of looked up like... Because we used to yell for each other in high school, you know, so it was -hmm. was, uh, neat. 99 is when we went to college. Incredible story. And I think they still live on Dorrington, which is right across the railroad tracks from what was Metairie Playground, and then they named it Wally Pontiff Playground.
0: Very cool. Rule five, do not let your children do anything that makes you dislike them. What does that mean to
1: you? (laughs) I love that one. It just means tough love. You know, you can't let kids have free reign because the kids are going to, they will condition you to treat them the way they want to be treated if you let them. So a lot of parents let kids walk all over them. And my father, when I graduated from Tulane, I didn't want to walk across stage. And the reason I didn't is because I really didn't know many people at Tulane outside of my football family, if you will. It's in New Orleans, which is where I was born and raised. And so my family, our teammates, uh, you know, I, and I did have some friends at school who were just students and I had a lot of friends at K-State. I didn't have any family there or anybody else. So when I graduated. Like I said, I didn't want to walk across stage. I just told my grandparents and I told my mom and dad and whoever else in our family wanted to come. I said, I just, I'd love to go to Christians. It was an old church that they turned into a restaurant and my dad had went to high school. His best friend was the owner and, uh, and I said, I just want to go to Christians and I want to have dinner with all of y'all. I'll bring my diploma. We can take some pictures, whatever y'all want to do. If y'all want me to bring the diploma. And my grandpa was, he was so extremely mad that I wouldn't walk across stage and he's, he. They wouldn't come to dinner with me. He's like, I refuse to go to dinner with you. because. And I was like, well, it's my graduation. It's not your graduation. And I'm sorry you feel that way. But I would rather spend it with the people I love for two or three hours and all these people that I don't really know that well. And he couldn't wrap his mind around that. So they didn't come. But it was my dad, my mom, and I. And it was just us. My sisters, for whatever reason, couldn't come. And... We were sitting there and I just told my, my mom and dad, I said, thank you for everything you've ever done for me. Thank you for disciplining me, beating the crap out of me, which I did get my ass beat. And it was for good reason. Trust me, I was a mischievous kid, but where I, when I got it is right before I went to Jesuit and was at a baseball camp, Wally and I were working with coach Wally, who he said a few key things. And, I, and all of a sudden I was, it edified what my parents said, but hearing it from somebody different, which I hear all the time as a coach, working with athletes and kids, but it just, it, it just, it finally clicked. And it was a total mindset, just a paradigm shift that I had. So when I graduated college and I told my dad, I was like, you know, thank you for all that. And he said something profound to me that I'll never forget, especially as a a man, as a parent, as a coach. He said, he said, Brant, my job was not to be your friend. It was to be your father. And if you'd have hated me the rest of your life for the way that I, that I disciplined you and that I was your parent, that's a chance that I would that I was willing to take and that I would continue to do that over and over again. I was like, "Wow, you know, even in even in the face of thinking or that I may hate him for the rest of his life, he still did what was right for me and by me and the same thing for my sisters." So, when I think about tough love and I think about it, it, which is interesting because now coming full circle, when I discipline my son in front of my mom and my dad, then I don't hit him or anything. But just when I come down, they're like, you really need to calm down. And I'm like, you used to beat the crap out of me. What the hell are you talking about? And I deserved it. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, so it's it's because they, they they showed us so much love. You know, I mean, you you knew that they loved you so much and they were doing it for your good. And at the time, you're looking at it from a kid's perspective and a, and a young man's perspective. Potentially like young teenagers perspective where you just want to go against the grain of anything that they tell you because you know They're right, but you see it from a different perspective as you get older but I just saw all my friends who had no aim and no direction in life. Whereas My parents I did have that and it was because of the foundation that laid With me and gave me and the road they paved for me through discipline and through tough love um, to then give me the tools of empowerment to be a free thinker and become who you know I could ultimately become in this world and give me every opportunity to do that.
0: That is powerful. That he was willing to risk your hating him for the rest of his life. That's, that's love. And I think that's the masculine leadership that we're so lacking in society hmm. today. It reminds me of the last dance when Michael Jordan was asked about whether his teammates liked him, and he talked about the price of leadership. That is the price of leadership. That's the risk that you have to take. I like that. Rule six, set your house in perfect order before you criticize the world. This almost could lead to a political discussion, because there's so many activists that want to change the world and remake the capitalistic system, but... You know, if you can't even make your bed in the morning, how are you going to remake society? What do you think about set your house in perfect order before you criticize the world?
1: It's being trying to be nonjudgmental of, of ourselves, first and foremost, and then, you know, the rest of the world. So, yeah, working on cultivating the best version of yourself um, before, I think, we criticize anybody in the world. It, it's It's their own personal journey, but... He talks a lot in there about learning good by experiencing evil. And he gives a lot of great examples of those Columbine and and some other different examples of of different people who experienced different things and came out of those experiences and wanting to impose that experience that they had onto other people instead of working on themselves and cultivating themselves and having good come out of those evil experiences or, you know, like you said, like having a rough upbringing and experiencing the other side of joy, which really made you appreciate the joy for people to clean up their life and and start to stop doing, you know, what you know is wrong. What he says in in that as well is because we all have these little things that we can change and work on, but a lot of people are either fearful at what will happen if they try and fail or they're fearful that, Maybe somebody will think something different of them if they do go to a party and don't have that drink, or you know, may come down upon them. And how am I going to react to that? Bring in peace to your household, the peace and the calming we were talking about earlier, to try to decrease the turmoil. But it all starts with us, you know. If if, if we have peace and if we have turmoil inside, that's just going to manifest itself in the outward that flows back in as well. Whereas if we have peace, calm, and abundance within. And it's going to align itself with our outer space as well. So our inner space and our outer space. If we were truly pushing for the best versions of ourselves every day, what would this whole world be like? The truth needs no defending. So whenever you feel yourself defending something, it's, it's the ego's need to feel right and validated. So focus on being the best version of yourself and creating that peace and calm and the world would be a much better place collectively
0: another powerful statement you're right i think he's attacked so frequently because he's such a big proponent of telling the truth the truth hurts sometimes (laughs) yeah and he's such a big fan of of nietzsche that i'll recite the quote that is to those human beings who are of any concern to me i wish suffering desolation sickness ill treatment indignities I wish that they should not remain unfamiliar with profound self-contempt, the torture of self-mistrust, the wretchedness of the vanquished. I have no pity for them because I wish them the only thing that can prove today whether one is worth anything or not, that one endures. You have to have self-awareness, spend some time in solitude when you're going through a tough time, and be confident that this too shall pass and you will experience joy again but to fully know joy, I believe that you have to experience its opposite. Very good. I want to talk a little bit about your upbringing. So you mentioned that you went to Catholic school. Do you think you benefited from going to an all-boys school?
1: Yeah, I do. I think that there were less, there's always going to be some distractions, especially in a a male-filled environment of banter and testosterone and you know, all those things. I just think that there was probably less distraction overall because you didn't have a a woman sitting next to you and you could compartmentalize that. I mean, did you talk about women at at school? Absolutely. You know, in relationships and things like that, but it it took that component out of it to a degree where there was probably a little bit more focus than there may have otherwise been. I don't, I don't know the difference being in high school and coming into that hormonal age and, you know, of adolescence and, and all that. It was tougher. I mean, when I was in grammar school, it was co-ed and, you know, I know in seventh grade, I mean, it was, there was a lot of note passing and, you know, things like that, that of course didn't happen at all boys school (laughs) that I knew of at least. So
0: it seems to me like it would be harder to get out of bed knowing that you weren't going to see any girls that day. (laughs)
1: Well, they were at school. They, you know, came for cheerleading practice and things like that. You know, they'd come for games and a variety of different events. If I'm being honest here, I think the focus was more on athletics and, and probably secondarily on on school and education at that point, maybe in my life. I mean, I say that I, I, I really enjoyed, you know, our curriculum and a lot of our, our faculty and teachers and the relationships that we had, but... You know, I really, from the time I was a kid, when I was born, you know, being in athletics, it was just, that was truly my passion is like athletics and training and, you know, all those things. So it wasn't tough to get out of bed. Um, I mean, other than the fact that it was school to the point we were talking about earlier, where you get to a certain point where you're like, I just don't want to go to school, but I enjoyed the brotherhood. I enjoyed the tradition that we had at Jesuit. I enjoyed the relationships we had with the brothers and the priests and and the faculty, I mean, we just we had such a great group of, of collectively of just really awesome men and women who were just incredible leaders to us. And then, you know, and that obviously that was passed down to us and our coaches were just also most of them were, you know, second to none.
0: Friends, I hope you got as much from this discussion as I did. This is an episode I'm going to be listening to over and over. We had a little bit of technical difficulty during fun questions, but I would have loved for you to hear Brant's answers to my questions, because he's truly one of a kind. He's as genuine as they come. Everything he talks, he walks. He backs up his theories of how to be a better man with action. And as he said, he's a man for others. Maybe I can get him back at a later date so you can hear just how he answered all of my questions. He's a very thoughtful guy and exceptionally poised, as you would expect. We packed so much into this episode, the trilogy of optimal health, as Brant talked about, healthy body, healthy mind, healthy finances, treating yourself like you're someone you care a lot about, empathy, empowering others, developing self-awareness, leadership, solitude, viewing yourself objectively, or as Brant calls it, taking inventory. He asked me about diminishing the ego so much. If you have any questions or comments, Please reach out to one of us. You can reach Brant at. Let me pull that up. It is on Twitter. He's at bequickfitness. Instagram is the same at bequickness. No, at bequickfitness. LinkedIn Brant Quick. Facebook Brant Quick. Also, there are Facebook pages for Be Quick Athletic Development and Be Quick Nutrition. If you enjoyed this episode, please copy the link and share it with a friend. And as always, thank you for tuning in. I can be reached at man underscore overseas on both Instagram and Twitter. Thank you, folks.